0: Okay,
2: i for Here's Aloisi from Place of the World Horror. Yeah!
0: You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas. Yes, hello and welcome to another edition of Shim, Spider and so much more. It's our 20th episode and we've got a fair bit to get through today, including our special guest later on, Bo Bush, the co-chief executive of the PFA. We've switched over to ACAST as our server. I hope you found the transition smooth and that the quality is a little better as a result. And joining me through uh, to run through the major talking points of the week are two Golden Boys from the Golden Generation, Jelko Kalats and Craig Moore. Good to see you guys. Spider, let's start with you. Any update on the Greek Super League Two season as yet?
3: No news is good news, boys. So it means we're in the exact same position we were in last week. So <laughs> nothing, nothing as yet.
0: Okay. Um, Maury over there in Scotland. I'm actually going to start with a tweet um, that I got sent from Ben Archer. We got sent. Um, and Ben says Rangers say they're two seasons away from being in financial danger again. How concerned are you now? I know you. There was a story about this in the Scottish Sun a day or two back. All is not quite as it seems. Is that a fair summation?
4: I think so, Simon. I mean, how concerned am I? Um, not not overly. Uh, look, the day-to-day running for the last two years uh, at Rangers has been less than uh, across the road at Celtic. The the biggest Difference from 2014 through to today is Rangers of um, outgoing transfers have only had six million pound Simon to Celtic's 97, um, and and obviously with everything that's at stake this year, being you know Celtic potentially going for ten in a row, Rangers hopefully being able to to stop that. I think that there'll be a lot more business next season. For Rangers, and I think that they're sitting with a, a lot of talented players. Uh, the captain Tavernier, Morelos, we've spoken about, Kent. A lot of players of, of of decent value that may be able to be moved on at some stage and, and recoup a lot of money for Rangers. And plus, the curve uh, at Rangers at the moment is is slightly on the on the, the rise, whereas Celtic possibly in in decline. So I'm not I'm not overly worried. Results over the weekend. Um, Rangers 4-0, that's eight games at home um, and still haven't conceded a goal. Celtic drop points, so exciting league this year.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Maury. Um, Let's get on with it. No Simon Says this week, so we're straight into Hard Talk. Hard Talk. Now, Hard Talk is brought to you by Streamgate, which has been live streaming since 2008, specializing in custom-built stream pages, pay-per-view, and multi-language streaming. They can cater to large online conferences with multiple simultaneous streams and destinations, including all social media channels servicing clients Australia-wide. Go to streamgate.com.au or find them on Instagram. And we should congratulate Streamgate. Incidentally, yeah, they streamed the Football Writers Festival in Sydney over the weekend did a very good job. And kudos to Anita uh, Merciades as well for putting on another terrific uh, festival, despite all the problems with, uh, with COVID. Um, guys, let's start off with uh, the local game. Uh, I want to ask you about the, the story that appeared uh, in Sydney Morning Herald over the weekend regarding what it called the clicky world of the trialling system in New South Wales. Uh, and points that the issues that we've known about for years, parents having to pay through the nose to get their kids into elite programs. When are we ever going to get this resolved? Is it solvable? It's so messy, isn't it, all of this?
3: Yeah, it's a disaster. I, I, I read that, Simon, and Look, having been a part of football for a long, long time in Australia, coming through the SAP programs, coming through the MPLs, coming through all these competitions, the reality is these clubs cannot survive without the money that the parents actually pay for the kids to play. That's the sad part about football. When is it going to change? The reality is it's not going to change or we're going to keep losing clubs because they can't survive. They're not getting sponsorship dollars. They're not getting television rights. So the only way for these clubs to stay afloat is by the parents paying. Now the clicks, that's the politics of football again. You will have, that. that is not only in Australia, that is not only in football, that is in every sport that is all over the world, the clicks. That is something that we're not gonna be able to change overnight. Are the best quality kids playing against the best quality kids? Maybe not. Are we too harsh uh, in saying that it's all about just playing and enjoying the game? Well, really, to actually enjoy the game, you want to win and you want to learn to win and you want to play for a club that's there to win. But it's all at a cost, Simon, and we've spoken about it a million times. Sadly, our game is run by money.
0: Um, Maury, just on uh, money... Another story that's appeared in the media this week, actually on the World Game website, uh, suggesting Fox Sports might be about to do a bit of an about turn and extend their deal with the A-League. What do you make of that story?
4: Mate, I would love to see Fox Sports blown out of the water by somebody else, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I know that they've invested a lot of money over the years, Simon, but I felt when we were really in a time of need, Uh, I felt that um, the lack of uh, support uh, through a very tough time for the sport um, and and holding a gun to the head of the game, I thought was poor form. And I hope that, and I'm sure that they do have the FFA, maybe a couple of other possibilities um, to at least keep Fox Sports honest. Um, Like I said, so I hope, the reality is, I hope there's competition for the the new broadcast rights of the A-League of the W League, of football in general, moving forward?
0: Well, I think, I think the good thing is, isn't it, that with the digital landscape ever evolving, uh, there are going to be more options. And I, I mean, I can see a scenario whereby uh, the game is, is spread and broadcast over multiple platforms, which, uh, you know, m- may be a good thing. Uh, and that might include Fox Sports or KO um, or, or something like that. But I think you're right in what we've seen over the last 12 months. The, probably the biggest and harshest lesson that the game is learned uh, in terms of TV is that it cannot be completely beholden for its financial future to one single paymaster uh, because that's dangerous um, and it, it, it puts all the power in their hands, which is not good for the sport. Um, just on the new A-League season, uh, the fixtures are still not released officially. It's like the Greek second league. It is, it's like a Greek Super League too. Um, I do hear that will that will change by the middle of this week. Uh, uh, by the latest, I'm sure the fans are getting a, a bit restless. The ever changing situation with COVID, of course, doesn't help. Adelaide were back in lockdown briefly uh, last week. It must be an absolute nightmare to organise. Um, do you feel that we we might still have hubs at, at some points, and, and that you know attendances will be sort of only bled back in gradually, Spider?
3: But it, it's funny because, you, you know, watch the other codes, like the State of Origin was on, there was 40,000 people there. There was, there, there are people, I, I can't understand the full situation because our stadiums are actually big enough. And if you're allowed to have 25% capacity at the stadium, it still means people can actually attend the games. So, I, I'm I'm a little bit dumbfounded by, by this whole situation. Uh, the Look, COVID's made it very difficult for everyone. It's a really tricky situation for everyone. I hope that it gets resolved. I hope these clubs can all play at home and get crowds even if it's not at full capacity, still at some capacity to play because I think we're all sick and tired of seeing empty stadiums and other codes having people at their grounds.
0: 100%. Um, Some of the fixtures that we did know uh, they were actually played this week. were in the Asian Champions League, Maury. Uh, sadly, defeats again for both our teams, Perth, Glory um, and Sydney FC. I'll ask you about the specifics in a moment. But uh, first of all, uh, the Chinese uh, football community has had a bit of a crack at the A-League after those results. So the signer website saying this shows that the A-League is simply not good enough. Sydney FC dominate uh, domestically, which they do. But they've won just one game in their last 17 in the Champions League. They're pretty damning statistics. It's hard to argue with them, isn't it?
4: Yeah, no, it is. And it's kind of something that we've discussed in terms of the coefficient and the ongoing um, allocation of spot for the, for the Australian clubs. I mean, it's very difficult for us to compete at that level. I actually think that, that Sydney FC and, and Perth Glory um done themselves proud on the back of very little uh, preparation. And... Chinese clubs coming off the, the back of a full season, uh, residual fitness. Look, it, it's it's a tough ask for the Australian club to do well, but the the, the downside of that, Simon, is uh, it will have an impact on our future involvement in the competition, and it's kind kind of worrying uh, when you start to hear those kind of reports coming out from uh, one of the bigger <clears throat> sorry countries in our confederation in the in the. The, the, the lack of respect for our, our league, that's not a good thing. And hopefully we can change um, that perception. But that comes by doing well in the competition, unfortunately.
0: Indeed. We've had no team get out of the group since Sydney and Melbourne Victory did it uh, in 2016. Um, Perth, as you mentioned, they had a strong finish against Shanghai Shenhua. They outshot their opponents. They outpossessed them. Uh, but just couldn't quite get the... the their first points that uh, that they would have loved to have had. Uh, Sydney FC, sort of a similar story. Um, And they ended up, of course, with 10 men, with Tom Hewitt-Bell being sent off. I don't know what that means for their next game because, of course, there's no Andrew Redmayne as well. Maybe young Levi K makes his debut. Or maybe, Spider, they they stick with Ryan Grant in goal. I mean, he's played (laughs) everywhere else. (laughs)
3: He's played everywhere else, hasn't he? Uh, it was a, just a brain explosion, wasn't it, by Howard Bell? Um, yeah, tricky stick situation for Sydney FC to be in. But you know what? I feel feel a little bit harsh at what the Chinese were saying about it. Sydney FC battered them in the first half, and in all fairness, yeah. they should have been up by two or three goals. Um, and yeah, maybe the legs got a little bit tired. A young keeper makes you know big occasion makes a, a silly. Judgement to come out for a ball, but I thought Sydney FC were unlucky. I thought they were very good, so hopefully they can bounce back. But they they did look the better of the two Australian teams, that's for sure.
0: Um, Melbourne victory, of course, start their or resume their campaign this week. Ma- maybe Mori there our best uh, hope to get through to the knockout stage. They've got three points on the board already, uh, and they have to play Beijing Goan, though, which is tough.
4: Yeah, that's it's not a, not an easy task. That. And again, Simon, like we've got. The preparation factor of, of leading into this, uh, Melbourne Victory had limited numbers till very, very late on. Um, yeah, they've got some points on the board and in, in, a, in a decent position to, to try and make an impact on this group. But the reality is, I think that they'll come up short. And that's not um, a negative um, thing about the club. It's just the circumstances leading into this particular tournament um, and the, the lack of preparation that our, our clubs have had. We felt that Sydney would be the best club um, in terms of what they delivered and I, I kind of can't really change my mind from what I've seen.
0: Well, a victory will include uh, two of their new signings, uh, Dylan Ryan and Ben Falami, both uh, hoping to be at the Tokyo Olympics in, in 2021 and on that theme, uh, the Olly Roos played the second of their two friendly matches uh, last week against A-League New Boys MacArthur FC. Uh, they came from behind, one by two goals to one Connor Metcalf scored a beauty and, and helped construct the second one as well with a, with a terrific cross-field ball. Uh, I'm a big fan of this kid, Spider. I don't know whether you are. I think he's got a lot. I think he could... Uh, I'm not saying he's going to be a Premier League superstar. I don't know how far his career can go, but I think he's got all the tools to be, uh, to be a socceroo.
3: Yeah, I worked work with him at Melbourne City and you could see that he was developing along nicely. Uh, he had a few injuries early as a, as a youngster. It took him a while to get over, but now he's starting to fill into his body. He, he reminds me of a younger Riley McGree, that, that type of player. Uh, he just needs games. He needs game time. He needs to play regularly, keep getting the you know, 50, 60, 70 matches under his belt. And I think in two or three years' time, Uh, we'll be able to judge him much better, but he's he's definitely on the right path.
0: Okay, Uh, just uh, finally, Maury, on uh, A-League signings, Uh, we've seen Riku Danzaki sign for Brisbane Raw this week. Uh, We don't have too many Asian players in the A-League. It's still a part of uh, the world that we don't look at too much, and the, the excuse is always, well, they cost too much money, but... There are bargains to be had in Asia, and it helps cement our relationship with the big continent of the North, doesn't it? Uh,
4: very much so. Hopefully, Dan Zaki does uh, really well for, for Brisbane. I applaud Brisbane um, for this particular move. Obviously, you hope the players are a su- success. Um, but you're right, Simon. It's, if we can get the right players, and it does take a little bit of resources in terms of you know, scouting and, and having a network to understand what players are possible, um, but I think it gives a, a good relationship and opportunity for commercial opportunities uh, between, between the countries. So, um, yeah, I'm excited by this one because I, I do believe also that there's a lot of Asian players that could come in and contribute uh, to the A-League. And like I said, that, that commercial reach that potentially can come into the game through um, good player acquisitions, I think is a very positive thing.
0: Indeed. Uh, More Asian players, please. It would certainly help our relations with the AFC as well. Uh, And certainly more Indigenous players. We're we're really struggling in that regard as well. With specific regard to the A-League, the W League a little bit better. Uh, NIDOC week has has just gone. I I saw a stat that was was written online uh, last week saying that we've only had seven male Indigenous players represent Australia, which I think is unbelievable I didn't realize it was that low the last one was Adam Sarota, and only one has actually gone to a world cup he being uh, Harry Williams we just don't do enough in this space do we it's as simple as that given the talent available in in the indigenous communities it's it's just not enough
3: is is that us again competing against the other codes Um, it's a a difficult one isn't it Uh, because they're out there, they're athletes, very good athletes. We, we probably just need to set things up. But again, comes the resources and money. And to spot these guys that are playing all over the place, it costs money.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. We're like scratch records, aren't we? Money, money, money. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, move on to a place where there's lots of money. And that's uh, the English Premier League and, and overseas in general. London Calling. London Calling. Well, guys, uh, let's uh, start off with a topic that's um, been pretty prevalent in Australia here as well as the UK. Uh, that being heading in football, we sort of touched upon this last week. Uh, Maury and Spider, uh, the players' union now in the UK are calling for the practice to be reduced uh, in training, and uh, particularly for for younger kids. And that ties in very nicely with the development of this new ball that uh, Dean Heffernan has has brought out, called the Heading Pro. Uh, it, it weighs only 250 grams, uh, less acceleration onto the heads. Um, and, and the exposure to heading the ball is, of course, as we're now sort of starting to find out, that cumulative effect over the years is, is the problem for, for players in later life, which is why the likes of Nobby Stiles, Jack Charlton, uh, developed dementia. Bobby Charlton has been diagnosed with it as well. So maybe this ball developed in Australia can, uh, can be one of the answers, if not the total answer.
4: Yeah, no, look, it would be fantastic uh, and something that that I, I'll certainly be behind and and pushing uh, while I'm over here because it's very topical, Simon, as you, as you know. And I think it's important that there still is a, the ability to be able to practice safely um, during the week before you go into potential games because you can't go from nothing to all of a sudden a game of football where potentially you head the ball a, a huge amount of time. So, um Mate, great, great um, initiative, um, you know, by by Dean Heffernan, and I actually tried to share something, but for whatever reason, I think because I'm in a different country, I couldn't get the fox the uh, content. But I'll look back into that and push it because Chris Sutton has been banging the drum here loudly uh, in the UK, saying that they don't do enough. And you know, if, if something like this lighter ball uh, can can be something that can make an impact through world football, then I'm all for it.
0: Indeed. Um, Spider, let's move on to the Nations League. Uh, Italy, Belgium, Spain and France through to the final four, probably to be held in Italy, covid permitting, uh, next October. Uh, I, I think it's probably fair to say the achievement of the, of the Italians is all the more remarkable given the injuries they suffered, given that they were missing a couple of players through COVID and they were missing... Their coach, Roberto Mancini, as well. There was no Bonucci, Chiellini, Chiesa, Verratti, Immobile. And they still managed to get through to the last four. That, that sort of speaks volumes for the Italian mentality, doesn't it, really? Uh,
3: very good side, Simon. Uh, you know, we, we all know the Italians for the cut and agile-style football. Uh, they can defend, but let me tell you, they can attack as well. And in the last probably three or four years, Italian football has come alive again. If you watch the Serie A, and the quality of the matches and the way teams are playing. It's no surprise to me uh, that they've got a very good side, that they're qualified. And we all know what Italians are like in tournament football. Uh, Very, very astute tactically. A very good team. uh, And they all want to play for their country. They're desperate to play for their country. So, they're all performing very well for their clubs.
4: And are they not, Simon, uh, Spider, are they not on a a ridiculous run of something like 22 games without defeat? Did I read correctly uh, during the week?
3: Something like that, Maury, but they're, they're, they're such a young, aggressive team. It's, it's really... The last three, four years, we probably don't talk about it enough to, to see uh, the styles of football in these countries. But, you know, like, I've just had a look. Milan just won tonight again uh, against Napoli. Like, it's an unbelievable league that we probably don't see enough of in Australia.
0: Indeed. Um, we certainly see plenty of the English Premier League. Um, let's talk about one or two of the games in that uh, competition over the weekend. Uh, at Tottenham Hotspur they defeated Manchester City by two goals to nil. Another goal for Son Hyung- min uh, He and Harry Kane are having terrific campaigns. Um, the protests against Jose Mourinho are a little bit quieter now that he sees Tottenham <laughs> the League. Are they genuine title challenges, in your opinion? Oh,
3: I, look, I, I love Mourinho. Um, I mean, I know you'll be upset with the results, Simon. I but, was. But uh, the, the, <laughs> the Catanaggio style of football, tactically, they pulled it off to perfection, Tottenham.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, the special one has kept a very, very quiet spider <laughs> very easily. Although, <laughs> although not on social media. I think he's got over one 1.1 million followers. So, he's, he's changing his tact a little bit. But... I think he could be special again potentially this season. I think Tottenham are a real, a real shout um, at, at potentially winning the the, the Premier League. Uh, Man City, uh, Simon. I think yeah, Man City still play well. I think what's been the um, the just the, the problem that they've had this season is not being uh, ruthless enough, um, not taking their chances. Um, you know, could have easily won the game against Liverpool. De Bruyne misses a penalty they went, they win that game we're talking about how good man city were um, but the special one mate he set up well man city dominated possession and tottenham picked them off 2-0 uh, great result a little bit similar to the game that i worked at yesterday um, newcastle at home to chelsea uh, as well simon where it actually looked like a train i mean it looks like a training game because there's no fans anyway <laughs> but newcastle were set up 5-4-1 it was like newcastle were working on their defence while Chelsea were just working on their waves of attack. It was <laughs> unbelievable.
0: A, a word about uh, City. Um, Pep has just signed a new two-year contract, sort of uncharted territory for him. He's going to be with the club for a fifth and a sixth year. He's got a bit of a rebuilding job, do you think? I mean, uh, you know, they, they don't seem to be able to convert chances. They've scored just 10 goals so far this season. Last year, by this point of the campaign they'd scored nearly 30. That, that's a massive drop-off. Um, well,
3: I'll, I'm going to ask you the question because you're the city supporter, okay? So, for me, Pep signing for another two years has something to do with the situation of world football at the moment. Hmm. For me, he, he can't get that money anywhere else. He's sort of stabilised there. For him to rebuild, how much has he spent? How much does he want to rebuild? Like, seriously, I agree with Maury. I think they're a good side. I think they play a good brand of football. I think they're missing the cutting edge this year.
4: That's which it. Is, which mm. has been sides. And Simon, you'll, I'm sure you'll agree with me. How much have they missed Aguero?
0: Oh, well, and this, this, of course, is the big problem because Aguero uh, uh, seems to have so many injury problems. It's almost like you, you can't rely on him. Not Not that it's his fault, but you can't rely on him being fit for you know, at least two-thirds of the campaign. Gabriel Jesus, uh, who's nominally is, you can't call him his backup, but he's the other alternative. He suffers injury problems as well. Now, they've got goals. De Bruyne can score. We know that. Raheem Sterling can score. Bernardo Silva can score. Phil Foden can score. But you need that regular man up top who is banging in the goals for you. Liverpool have it at the moment with uh, Diogo Jota and with Mohamed Salah and um, I know Fermani's had, had a bit of a dip-off. Sadio Mane as well. Firmino, I should say. Uh, Sadio Mane's uh, um, there as well. You need those regular goal scorers, don't you? And I just I do wonder whether come January, and we've talked about this before, whether City will go after Messi again. But his comments last week, again, he appears completely uh, uh, disappointed that he's going to stay with Barca. And that yeah. reunion with Guardiola, I, th- I think will give... Messi a a boost. I think it would give Pep a boost. And I think it would give Man City a boost, quite honestly. Maybe
4: maybe that's why he he, he signed. Maybe they're working working like the Spanish type of club. So, Pep has promised Man City, Messi, if they give him another two-year contract. (laughs) (laughs) I I
3: found it a little bit strange, to be honest, that he re-signed. But in the circumstances with the way the game is i don't think you get that money anywhere else so uh, look i hate to say it simon but i hope i'm wrong but uh, it's a strange one for me
0: um arsenal's dip has been a bit strange as well i got a draw at the weekend against leeds uh, nil It finished um, an alleged clash in training during the week between danny chabalos and, and david Lewis, which uh, Luiz, which went public and Mikel Arteta, pretty unhappy warning of consequences for the person who actually leaked it to the press. They won just one of the last five Premier League games. And yet, all that on the back of the start to a season where there was an awful lot of optimism around Arsenal. He sorted out the defence. They look a lot stronger. Have the old problems resurfaced or is it something different?
4: I think it's a new problem. I mean, Arsenal have always been a team that have kind of been able to score goals. Um, But they've really... They've really gone off the boil in terms of...
0: Aubameyang um, has in particular, hasn't he?
4: Yeah, but that... I mean, even the, the game they lost to Aston Villa, they both... Aston Villa and Arsenal in the attacking half had had the, the same amount of possession, Simon. Yet, Aston Villa away from home created 16 chances to Arsenal's eight. So, that creativity um, is, is not there currently. Um, yes, they have improved... Defensively, but certainly by by no means has Arteta fixed them defensively yet. Um, for me, there's there, there's some concerns. Obviously, you know, I, I'm you, you get busts up in training every other week, Do You know what that's like, man. I've got I'm not got an issue with that, but again, how it was leaked and and what have you, that that's a concern for Arteta, and he's come out quite strong. So, a few things happening behind the scenes that are probably not fantastic for uh, for Arsenal supporters at this moment in time.
0: Indeed. Um, good win for Manchester United. They needed just to win really at Old Trafford. Um, VAR again involved. We, uh, we won't go into that because it, uh, it played out at a few Premier League grounds again uh, this weekend. So let's finish off on a positive note instead uh, for this particular segment, Spider. Georgie Blackwood. What a yes. goal he's he rolled them. And yes. giving Harry Kuehl yeah. a win at Exeter. What a hit. He's
3: doing all right, yeah.
0: isn't he, Georgie Boy? Hey,
3: Harry, what a... Mate, Harry's on, he's on fire. at I think five wins from their last seven. Uh, it's incredible when you've got an Aussie coach, a fellow friend like that, and you just follow them religiously when they're playing and you're just like crossing your fingers that they get a win and that, that it can, continues for them. And great for Georgie Blackwood. Uh, it'll do his world of confidence. He's getting game time... They're, they're, they're winning matches, which is fantastic for Holden, for, for Harry, for Georgie Blackwood. No, great news. Great news.
4: Finish as well, Spy. It's just his right foot. He just bends it into the, the far far corner there. And physically, we know that Georgie Blackwood has got the frame for it. But he certainly, you have to back it up here in the UK, especially in League Two. So, his game will, will come on a lot by playing those matches, as you said. So, yeah, no, well done to both. Uh, the Aussies are doing well there, which is pleasing.
0: Maybe George about to fulfil the potential that George, um, uh, that Graham Arnold saw all those years ago when he started off at Sydney FC. Thanks for the moment, uh, guys. Let's move on to our final segment, and we've got uh, another big guest waiting for us in footballers' lives. Footballers' lives. Well, our guest this week was born in Newcastle in 1984. His playing career followed a fascinating trajectory, starting off with Hamilton Olympic and Broadmeadow Magic. He graduated to the A-League via Manly United, signing for the Newcastle Jets on a trial basis in 2008, before finally making his debut in the top flight in the same year for Sydney FC in a Big Blue against Melbourne victory. After 10 games with Sydney, he got his first permanent A-League deal with North Queensland Fury in 2009, and the Fury fans immediately made him a bit of a cult hero, forming the Bo Bros to honour his long hair. In 2010, he went back to the state leagues with Manly before a bit of a seismic change in 2011, when he went to Scotland to join Arbroath. Spending a single season playing in the Scottish Second Division, but Bo always always had more to his bow, if you'll pardon the pun. He's a trained journalist, and when he returned to Australia, he took up a position with the PFA as their media and communications officer. In July this year, he was named, along with Katie Gill, as one of the co-chief executives of the PFA, and he joins us now. It's a great pleasure to welcome Bo Bush to the podcast. How are you, Bo? Bo.
2: Yeah, I'm doing very well. Not as much hair as you mentioned at that particular <laughs> time, mate. Unfortunately, it doesn't grow like that anymore. But um yeah, no, really nice. Nice to uh, nice to be here, mate. And um thanks for the warm intro. I think slightly overstated. Uh, much of my playing career, but nevertheless, thanks for the uh, thanks for taking the time to look into that, mate. I think you might have had to have gone to the dark web for some of that information, <laughs> mate, to track that down. So.
0: No, no, it was it was all there. Um, and, and we'll start, before we get on to the PFA stuff, which is obviously the main reason why we've got you on today. But uh, we should talk a little bit about your playing career, because it was interesting. Um, do you remember your A-League debut against Melbourne Victory? Uh, sort of thrown into the deep end a little bit, weren't you?
2: Yeah, no, certainly. I think at the back that day, there was Paul Robbie Middleby uh, was alongside myself, Anthony Gollick, who obviously has gone on um, and had a good career in the A-League and overseas, um, and Mitchell Prentice as well too. So it was the four of us at the back. I imagine Paul, um, I think it was Butzer in goals, or I think Butzer might have even been injured. And it was uh, Ivan Nasewski in goals as well too. So Ivan, if if I am correct, was probably pretty nervous when he saw that team sheet go up. But, um, yeah, thankfully we managed to hang on. And I think Johnny Aloisi came off the bench and scored um, to make it 2-0. So it was a pretty unlikely win. Um, But, yeah, really good memories that first match, that's for sure, mate. Unfortunately, the rest of the season didn't turn out the way Sydney FC certainly would have hoped and we didn't make the finals, one of the rare times. But, yeah, the first game was, yeah, certainly a memorable one.
0: Your debut is is always a bit special. Um, I imagine your first pro contract is special as well, which you got with North Queensland Fury, but obviously the club didn't survive should it have done.
2: It's a good question. I think, you know, that first season, um we had some challenges early on. I remember playing against Hugh Moore in a in a pre-season match and he gave us an absolute beat down. And I think it was about 3 or 4 now at half time. And I always remember in my head you making the guys run off at half time. It was as if like there was more to come for us and you <laughs> oh, we're, <in, laughs> we're in trouble. Yeah, um and then, um, yeah, then we we seemed to sort of work out towards the end of the season that basically it was so hot up there and so difficult to play in those conditions. If we kind of just hung on for the first half, we'd be okay in the second half. Um, but I think, yeah, the crowds, you know, started to improve certainly towards the end of the season. And, you know, there was people driving seven, eight, nine hours to come and watch a game. Um, which was brilliant. So um, I think it probably could have worked, but it was at a particular time where um, I guess the game was going through a range of challenges in the wake of uh, the failed World Cup bid. um, And there was a decision made to go to Western Sydney. And I think we can all say that was the right decision to go to Western Sydney. But I know there was a lot of people heartbroken by that decision to move the club away, having got to take their first taste of professional football in that region, mate.
4: Yeah, no, it was a tough one, Bo, because I'm quite close with uh, Don Matheson, who was he was heavily involved, obviously, uh, with Ooh. North Queensland Fury, and I think originally my discussions with Don that there was five investors, but by the time that North Queensland Fury got off the ground, he was kind of the last man standing. Um, but look, he was, you know, I still speak to him today, and his uh, his experience all of that time was was a, was a positive one. He felt that. The club could have survived. I mean, let's be honest. You you were the entertainers of, of the A League. I think you were everyone's favourite uh, second second side. You know, if not uh, the the obviously the the supporters from up in that region, which is a massive region, as you know. But
2: mm.
4: is there any chance that, that something like that could c- come back again to the A League?
2: yeah you'd like you'd like to think so more you know you've seen with the cowboys that how successful that team can be, how parochial it is um in that if they can capture all the surrounding areas as well too so I think you know from my perspective, it was certainly built really strong links into the community up there there was a real hunger for football um Commercially, it was always going to be challenging. It is a smaller population base and those sort of things. But I think it was a really enjoyable place to live and and play. We had a really uh, close-knit group. Up there, um, I think because none of us came from that region, so we only had each other. So we were really, really close. Um, and I think certainly in the first season, you know, we weren't that far in, in actually getting into the finals. Which, when you look at what we had, probably on paper outside of Robbie Fowler, uh, most people wouldn't have predicted that. So I think had we kept building, we probably could have done quite well. But I think you're right. The core issue was that Don was sort of left carrying the can, and unfortunately for a startup club, it was just just too much um, too much to carry for him, mate. So. I'd like to think maybe in the future we can get back to there. Maybe if we get a national second division up and running, that can be a bit of a, um, a testing ground for teams with ambition, such as Townsville, to show that they can work at a professional level and then progress in. So you never know, mate. It'd be great to see, um, great to see professional matches going on uh, up there again, that's for sure.
0: Bo, you, you and I have spoken on several occasions in the past about your move to Scotland and freezing cold winter days at, at Gayfield Park, with uh, the wind whipping in off the North Sea. Um, why did you decide to to go to Scotland? How, how did that all come about?
2: It was pretty pretty simple, Simon. No one was willing to sign me in Australia, so I had to go somewhere to get a game mate. So, um, so I moved over to there. I was on trial in England for quite a bit at Crewe and. It had taken a while for my visa to come through, so I sort of missed pre-season. Um, and then I ended up, I went up to Ross County, actually, um, at around Christmas time, and things were pretty positive there. And then I strained my medial and was out for a while. And it got to the end of, I'd sort of been in the UK for a year, almost, and was certainly running out of money pretty swiftly, um, was working in the bar. And the only options really were to go on trial again. And, and to be honest, mate, I, I just didn't have the money to do that anymore and then Stuart Petrie who we'd all know um, was the assistant coach at Hubrowth and asked if I wanted to come up there. Um, it was for the the, the uh, huge sums of I think it was 200 pound a week um, at the time um, and I managed to go up there lived in Edinburgh and, and it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's probably like a lot of Australians experience. The preseason was great. The pitches were great. Um, then it got into the winter and I found it going a little bit tougher but um yeah, no, it was it was really enjoyable. One of the highlights was playing against Maury's old team Rangers and at the time I think they had uh, Nikita Yelovich Paul Bartley, these players, and it was fantastic, mate. And it was at Gayfield, you know, right on the North Sea, with all the Rangers fans there. So those memories alone were worth it. Certainly wasn't lucrative, mate, but it was, a, yeah, really good life experience. And I think Simon, you've managed to go to that that ground as well too, haven't you, mate? We've had a discussion when you've been there. So um, yeah, yeah it's certainly right on the North Sea. I think one game got called off because our goalkeeper went to put out a goal kick and I was playing centre half and it went just past me a little bit then came back to me on the 18-yard box and I headed it back to him and the ref just said, this is, a, this is a joke, we've got to wrap this up here. So, I think that was getting uh, towards the end of my time there. So, great experience but um, football-wise, probably wasn't what I was hoping for but I, I certainly enjoyed it, mate.
0: Um, you spent just a single season uh, with our growth. And then you retired at the age of, of 28. Why was that?
2: Um, it's a good question, I think. it's sort of been, it had been coming for a while, you know. Part of you starts to think that either everyone else was was wrong and I, and I was right that I could continue to play at a decent level or I was wrong and they were right so I'd, I'd thought about it for a long time and my ambition was always to try and play at a decent level um, but what I sort of got a sense of was that I was 28 best case scenario it was one year deals here and there and it was it was really challenging And we were thinking about we we're quite eager to To start to have a family and have kids and and sort of not live this really sort of nomadic life with all the uncertainty that came with it. And I guess I was kind of worn down by that, um, to be honest. I'd done my degree in journalism and I was actually starting to get offered more work as a journalist. I was doing a bit of work for The Scottish Sun and, and Fox Sports and others and I was really enjoying it. And I've never been someone that's kind of half in, half out. And I just felt a sense, you know, when I thought about it pretty deeply that I wasn't all in anymore. And I knew that if I wanted to go down the path of being involved in football in a different capacity, I needed to be all in on that. So, yeah, so I, I made the decision to finish up. It wasn't, um, it was more difficult just because it felt unfulfilled, my career in many ways. Um So I think that part was difficult, but there wasn't, you know, a load of offers that I was knocking back that made it particularly difficult, mate, to to walk away.
0: That sort of leads us on to your role with with the PFA. You started initially in that media role. Now you've got uh, the top job itself, along with Katie Gill, two Novocastrians together. Um, Is it a role that has big challenges? I think I probably know the answer to this, um, particularly during COVID with trying to uh, negotiate a CBA and deal with salary caps and all the rest of it. It it must be a 24-7 job.
2: Yeah, certainly, mate. It's challenging. You know, football, it doesn't work nine to five. Um, We've got members um, all over the world. So we're needing to to be available at, at any particular time. At COVID, I think the challenge was there was just so much uncertainty globally, you know, everybody was seeking answers and it was really difficult because many times you're unable um, to provide it, Simon, to give people the clarity that they that they needed and I think at the moment we're still a little bit in that situation where there's a lack of certainty, we, we don't really know um, what next season, so not this season coming, the one after that really looks like when it's going to start and those sort of things and I think in that environment it poses a lot of challenges both on an individual basis for players trying to make decisions about where their career is going to go and collectively about how we're going to rebuild the sport. So, yeah, it was challenging. I think week one was when we we're trying to get the Melbourne teams out of out of Melbourne. So I remember texting JD at the time, saying, "Thanks, mate. Um, you've left us a real easy one to get off the market." Um, but um, yeah, I think certainly it was difficult. But because I'd been so involved over a long period of time, Simon, and I'd been involved in the extension negotiations with JD. Um, I knew it wasn 't going to be easy, I knew those negotiations were going to be really challenging, so i wasn 't surprised by it at all um, but yeah certainly certainly a challenging role, but also a huge honor as well to to be honest mate, to be able to represent the players
0: bo i 'm fascinated as to how uh, the, the co the joint roles work, how yeah. you and Katie sort of work together is Is that tricky because the only sort of comparison you know I can make is I remember a few years ago, I think it was Charlton Athletic and, and a few other clubs besides, uh, you know, yep. Alan Kerbishley and Steve Agritt, they were, they were joint managers and it, it didn't really seem to work because mm. nobody seemed to know who yep. was in
2: charge. So how yeah. does it work? Yeah, well, there was another good example. I think it was Liverpool, wasn't it, with Gerard Houliat Right. Uh, when he first came into Roy the club. Um, yeah. yeah, and Roy Evans. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key differences as opposed to that, because, you know, we we thought about that a lot and Brendan at the time posed that sort of question to Kate and I. Um, I think the difference is with the PFA, the main decisions are, are made by players. You know, if we approve a CBA, it's the players' decision, it's the executive decision, it's the delegates. So all the big decisions are made by them. We're not a, a private company, really, where um where we have sole discretion just to approve a CBA on our own basis we are run by the players for them so i think that dynamic is is very different Kate and I have known each other for a really long time. Um, and I think we've got a really strong relationship and that means it can take really robust discussions to get to a point where we do reach agreements. So I think in that point, like anything, it just, it just takes work and is built on communication and trust. And as I said, we've known each other for a really long time, but also we have an absolute commitment to make sure that the organisation is, um, is a players' union and it is run by the players' side. So that's sort of been our constant focus. And that means that really all the key decisions are made by them. It's Kate and I's job to get all the options into the best possible place for them. Um, and then when we've done that, then really it's up to them. And we need to make sure that, yeah, we can pursue that path successfully if they choose, mate.
0: Um, let's, let's move on to uh, a discussion about how COVID uh, has affected not just the financial side of the game, but uh, the, the mental health of the players. I know, I know that you've been big on this because obviously a lot of players in the A-League have had to be based in Hobbs, uh, sometimes for six, seven weeks. In, in the case of Wellington Phoenix, I think the best part of three or four months, um, and that may mm. have to eventuate again um, if we get another spike in Australia and New Zealand. How has that affected your members? And have they had... Have you had a, a lot of players come to you say, look, I'm, I'm struggling with this? Because that's all part of your gig as well, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we oversee through the CBA, the play development um, program, and essentially ensure that there's uh, psychological support for players in place. And we also employ a, a play development manager at, at every club to support the players. Um, but back to your original point, Simon, we did an extensive survey with Pro during the sort of shutdown period when the players were stood down. And what it revealed was there was a significant increase in their anxiety and also in their depressive symptoms as well too. So That was a really big concern. And I think now we're sort of at a stage where there is this ongoing uncertainty that is really challenging. And I think when people don't have certainty, it tends to increase you know, logically their anxiety about where their careers are going their trajectory and those sort of things. And when we did a really extensive another survey with the players at the end of the season, what we found was there was a real lack of confidence in the direction of their careers. And we're seeing a strong correlation with with players that weren't doing so well. Um, And we continue to see that now you know we've got a whole host of particularly w league players that have gone overseas and they're now trying to get back for the w league and you know there's things as simple as there's no flights they haven't been paid they can't afford to get back into the country you know and we're trying to work through that Um, we had guys in indonesia um, for a while there that you may have read that Indonesia was going through the roof in terms of COVID, the leagues were getting shut down, the country was getting shut down, and we just simply couldn't get them out. Uh, We had to get the help of the government. So I think during this time, we kind of had to. a lot of the things that we built the PFA on is our legal and advocacy work. And we also had to become travel agents, counsellors, all these other areas, um, because, you know, the way we sort of work, we are the key point of contact for players. and I think that was a big challenge for the staff, but one fortunately we managed to sort of navigate. It was a lot. Of, we learned a lot of new things that previously we hadn't done before.
4: Oh, how is how important is it to the players? You touched on your own career in terms of that, or mm. well, the cost uh, and the energy of, of of trying to secure contracts and and yep. being a a year a year's contract, which doesn't offer a great deal of, of security for mm. a player. Um, I know the PFA are massive in terms of the the you know, the restructure of Australian football and the yep. encouragement of longer term deals to, to provide that security for the players and
1: the stability.
4: Ooh, yeah. But also, it's a good option for a football club if they develop the player in the right manner to be able to hopefully have these players going on to, to bigger and better things through a domestic transfer system and also um, bigger moves hopefully overseas. But how important is that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been uh, talking for a long time now, Maury, that every season is starting with 60% of players coming off contract. You know, it's completely eroding any chance of creating a market, particularly when overseas clubs are looking to buy our players. You know, they're simply going to look at the situation and be that most likely that player is going to be coming off contract at the end of the season. So therefore, their value is dramatically reduced by that. Um, so I think that's absolutely correct, mate. Also, what we've sort of seen is that in recent years, and we saw this with Angers, um, Brisbane Roar, and we're seeing this with Sydney FC, that squads that have more stability are also more successful from a sporting point of view as well too. And there's a strong correlation that these teams are generally evolving and getting better and better and better. Um, and that's sort of what we see. at The teams that are more likely to keep turning players over there's the opposite, that they're generally down towards the bottom of the ladder. So I think you're absolutely right, mate, that we want to see more stability here. We've also done some research that showed that the fans want to see more stability as well too, that the constant churn is hurting people um, engaging deeply and building strong connections with the players, mate. So I think you're absolutely right. If there's longer term contracting, we actually have an opportunity to create a market. And I think what we've seen in the introduction of loans has actually shown that The impact of the cap is so uh, powerful in terms of the short term contracting that there's no market for players on loan because nobody's going to loan a player that's coming off contract at the end of the year. And I think that's been our point about the introduction of a transfer system, also the domestic transfer system, rather, with a salary cap is that you're going to get very little benefit out of that based on the fact that everybody's coming off contract. So that's why that sort of been, sits at the heart of our position to combining the two um, and that we're very sort of against that at the moment. Um, and I think, yeah, that's really key for us. We need longer term contracting. It's going to drive up the value in players and clubs and also um, allow for the game in Portland to generate some new revenues, mate.
3: Um, well, I've got one question uh, and yep. I agree with the long-term contracts for the players and mm. mate, we're all about the players getting what they yep. want. The only thing that I'm sceptical on is, and I've seen it firsthand because I've worked in the A-League, yep. players when they get their contracts, mate, they're untouchable. They're actually untouchable. The club, I actually feel for the clubs because every manager gets things wrong. So yep. he signs a player, it doesn't work out. Then what happens? These players can't get frozen out They could be poisonous apples in a dressing room and there's no way of these clubs to getting rid of these players. This is a big problem where we have to have some sort of clauses. I think, yeah, obviously, the, the loan system, once that happens, that'll be able to help situations like that. But we've got to be careful. I feel that the players, and it's not your job, your job is to give the players as much power as you can. So I understand. But we've got to be careful for the game that the players don't have all the power.
2: Yeah, I think it's a a really good question, Spider, and it's come up recently. A lot of people have discussed that with me. Um, But I think it sort of cuts both ways. So the clubs also have the same amount of power that if a player wants to leave, they can't simply just depart. So what we want to try and make sure is that in any contractual relationship, there is balance and that both parties are had a equal sort of footing. So I think historically what we've wanted to ensure that, you know, for a long time, and you guys would know this better than I, the power was very much shifted in the other way, that even at a time when players' contracts were expired, they were still tied to their clubs. Um, so that was a situation that was really... Adversely impacted on players, so I think our sort of starting point has always been how do we make sure there's balance in that contractual relationship for both parties, and that both parties are protected and allowed to really invest their careers into that. Because the last thing we want to see is a situation where players get injured and clubs are looking to move them on. Um, players commit and move and work incredibly hard and do everything right, but for whatever reason, the club just simply wants to move them on, and the player has no no saying that. So I, I take your point, Spider, and I just think it's very much about how do we ensure there's balance in that contractual relationship is important.
4: And I think probably the main one that's come out in the news recently, Bo, uh, and it, it, again, it's good because the listeners get to hear your take on it, I guess, in, in mm. regards to the PFA. I mean, the Bernie Abini situation, uh, yep. where, again, that's probably the, the shift spider that you're talking about, that all of a sudden the player is trying to dictate terms. Now, we know that that does happen. I mean, the, the problem in Australia is still the lack of depth in terms of clubs. For yep. potentially potentially that movement but if the clubs are having to honor their contracts then the flip side of that is you know the players also uh, there's a responsibility on their part as well
2: yeah absolutely contractual security is is vital Maureen. Um and I think in these situations it can feel very much like the clubs have no option or adversely the players have no option and our advice is always to go back to the contract you know what are the rights of the players and also equally so when you have rights you also have responsibilities so I think with both those parts it's really it's really important and what we've sort of fought for a really long time is for contractual security um, to allow players to actually invest into a genuine career so that's really important um, for us to that point, Maury, that we want to make sure that just as we're seeking clubs to honour their contracts, we want to make sure that players uphold their responsibilities and not saying that's not, uh, that's not occurring here, but just from a conceptual point of view, we need to make sure that's the case. Because, um, yeah, the last thing we want is just a huge amount of uncertainty on, on either side. It's not going to be beneficial for the game. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's, uh, That leads us on to a couple of Twitter questions. We have quite a few for you. Um, let's uh, let's start with this one from Jason, lover of football, who wins our <clears throat> excuse me question of the week hundred dollar uh, voucher for the Outback Steakhouse is on its way to you, Jason. Uh, does the PFA feel that the second division could already be in place and should have been perhaps? I'm paraphrasing his question here. Um, at least three years ago.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. You know, obviously the game was at a different point there when it had a long term broadcast deal and there was probably more certainty around the professional leagues. I think what we are absolutely committed to is we know there's not enough opportunity for the development of our players. Um, I think what we've always sort of been on the record of saying the professional footprint needs to needs to expand and then we need to have more players playing uh, professional football across the country if we are to be internationally competitive we just released our a-league report and what it showed is the actual percentage of match minutes played by young players is pretty high by global standards but we have 12 professional teams in our league and that's it so the challenge is how do we build that out and create more opportunity for players and I think the second division is crucial I think we've always been very clear that we believe that needs to be a fully professional league if it is to address the objectives that we all rightly have for it and that's seeing more people in professional football so I think potentially Simon that could have been in place at that time Um, I think there's a lot of things we'd like to see move forward. And I think expanding that professional footprint is is really, really important.
3: Just quickly, financially, do you think it's viable? Like We've seen how the A-League struggled. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's viable for us to have a second division at the moment?
2: I think the devil will be in the detail spider of how compelling the vision is for the entire sport, how compelling the vision is for the the national second division. I think if we can achieve that, then people will be willing to invest. If they can see a path forward where their investment is going to be maximised and that there's going to be benefit for the game and also for them, I think we can do that. I think it's really in how do you position the sport as positively as possible so that people actually want to invest and that their investment is in the right areas that you're actually going to get the benefit from it. If you're able to do that, I think, yeah, I'd like to think so, Spider, that there's enough interest in this game. You know, as mm. as we all know and we've all discussed, you know, millions of Australians get up in the middle of the night to watch World Cup matches. You know, they're passionate about the sport. It's how do we connect to those people that are kind of already converted. So I think in these particular spaces, we need to be really creative. It could be universities like they've done in Japan. It could be existing clubs. It could be, you know, new investment in Into the league. But I think, you know, professional sports leagues around the world are still getting significant investment into them. So if we can set it up right, um, it's part of the broader vision for the sport, including the A-League and W-League, then I think, I'd like to think so, Spider, yeah.
3: I'm glad to hear that because I'm a mass advocate for for it. I, I think it has to come in and I think it has to come in within a year.
2: Yep.
0: Okay, uh, last question, um, Bo, because we should let you go. This, uh, this comes from Samuel samuell too. I think I think it's a good one as well. Uh, how valuable has your experience as a professional player been in making and taking those key decisions uh, with the PFA? You sort of touched on that a little bit already, but uh, yeah, good question.
2: Yeah, it is. Anna, and I've been asked that a bit. And, you know, I've spoken to um, others about that. I think Brendan Gale, the, the CEO of Hawthorne, put it, put it best. It certainly hasn't hurt it that way and there's been experiences that no matter what level of of university study i would have done or whatever i wouldn't have been able to experience that i wouldn't have been able to experience the disappointment of of losing a contract of signing a contract of moving overseas and those sort of things and also understand the challenges associated with being a professional player Um, but also importantly the challenges that i got to witness of the work that went into behind the scenes from coaches to support staff to those sort of things. So I think really, really beneficial, Simon, could someone do the role without having done it? Well, you know, we have a great example at the PFA with Brendan Schwab that was hugely successful. But I think what Brendan had was a really unique empathy and that allowed him to connect deeply with the profession and the players. And Brendan was certainly never going to have a discussion with you about tactics. Uh, That wasn't his area of expertise. Uh, But Brendan was the absolute, you know, really, to be honest, the best in the world in relation to collective outcomes and individual advocacy for players. So I think it certainly helped, mate. Um, Not the be-all and end-all, but, yeah, certainly been beneficial for me, that's for sure.
4: And Bo, just quickly, finally, Maddie Ryan and Tommy Orr elected to the PFA executive this week. Two fantastic profiles and more importantly, individuals. You, you must be very happy yeah. to have them on board.
2: Yeah, really happy. That was a real priority. Obviously, we had Millet on the exec for a long time, guys. Um, and Millet was really you know crucial in everything that we did um we've always had the soccerers have been so important to the pfa of what you guys have done you know both of you guys on the call were absolutely vital to ensuring that the soccerers utilize their power for the benefit of the whole sport you know um, and that's what we're asking for Maddie and Tommy to do as well too. You know, Maddie, I spoke to him. You're always um, a little bit unsure when you speak to a player of that profile of how interested they're going to be, how much time they're going to commit. Um, and Maddie was first class straight away. You know, he was asking a lot of great questions, really committed. So we're really pleased. And Tommy, Tommy has been involved for quite a while now. Tommy had a difficult experience over in Cyprus. Um, so we got to know Tommy really well through that. Then he got more involved when he came back. So we're really excited to be able to have both of them involved and they're really um you know deep thinkers about the game great profiles well too, as you said Maury and really trusted importantly by the membership so and that's what we were looking for when you're trying to replace someone like Miller on there you need to make sure that it's someone with a lot of presence who's hard to replace and I think Miller asked Maddie to come on I don't think too many people are going to say no to Miller so that was our big ploy to make sure he came on though.
0: So yeah, we're we're going to leave it there, mate, uh, because we've taken up enough of your time and I know that uh, no, fine, you've got a busy mate. day ahead. So uh, all that remains is for us to say uh, thanks so much for, for giving us some of your time and uh, such valuable insight into the into the role of the PFA as well. Thanks, mate. No Cheers.
2: problem. Thanks, guys. appreciate it. Cheers, boat. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Take care.
0: And that is us for this week. See you same time, same place next week for more Shim Spider and so much more. See you then.